Hi, I'm Jason Voss, Content Director with CFA Institute, and welcome to another of our Take 15 video interview series um, where we interview leading financial practitioners and thinkers. My guest today is Lacey Hunt of Voicington Investment Management, and our topic today is the debt deflation inflation uh, debate and pathways to normalcy. Thank you very much for being here, Lacey. Nice to be here. I wonder if you could, by way of sort of laying the ground and the context for this whole discussion, talk about how we got here. Well, the United States has experienced an inordinate buildup of debt since the mid-1990s uh, to levels that are extremely high relative to any measure of normalcy. Uh, we currently have uh, public and private debt uh, that amounts to about 350% of GDP. Since 1870, the average is only about 160 points. The, the, real, the, the real serious development is what really occurred after 1997. Uh, we added about 100 percentage points of the debt-to-GDP ratio, um, but the standard of living fell. The median household income is lower now than it was 15 years right. ago. Uh, which indicates that we not only have too much debt, but we have too much of the wrong kind of debt. Right. Uh, debt, to be useful, has to be able to generate an income stream to repay the debt. And so we not only have too much debt, we have a very significant portion of our debt that is either unproductive, in other words, non-income generating, are possibly even of the counterproductive type of debt, which um, debt that may initially be beneficial, but it leads to delinquency, foreclosure, bankruptcy, that sets up a negative income stream. I like to call this a debt disequilibrium. Right. And there's one more aspect of it. We have been trying to cure the over-indebtedness by taking on more debt. I've noticed. And so we perpetuate the problems. Yes. But the high levels of debt are debilitating. And uh, they, are, they are creating a number of very observable symptoms. Uh, for example, <clears throat> the recovery in GDP in the three years of this expansion um, is the worst since World War II for any uh, three-year period. Right. Uh, and only half of what is normal. But more importantly, we have to remember that GDP measures spending, not prosperity. In those same three years, uh, disposable per capita income is virtually unchanged. Yes. We have not generated income. Income measures prosperity. And even though aggregate income is holding its own, that reflects the income upper, middle, and lower. About 85% of our households, maybe 90, have experienced declines in real income mm -hmm. in this recovery. That's another major symptom. Um, and it, it is, the debt is sort of grinding the economy down. 
making it weaker and weaker. And then we're getting tributary symptoms uh, as a result of it. Uh, the poverty rate, for example, is now at a record level. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, uh, we have a record low percentage of our households, only 41% that are paying income tax. Uh, these are reflections of the fact that we, we are no longer a vibrant economy, we're not generating income. Uh, another symptom, which is going to have uh, longer lasting repercussions, is that our birth rate this year will be the lowest in 25 years. So now typically in this kind of a situation, economic crisis, the demographic headwinds you're talking about, there would be a place for either fiscal or monetary policy. I wonder if you could talk about where you see the efficacy of those two policy levers. Well, there, <clears throat> there have been some new terms that have come into the economic literature uh, in the last several years uh, that are highly relevant to your question. They are the fiscal limit, the Keynesian end game, the Cochrane moment, the bang point. And while they're all a little bit different when you take them down to their finest technical point, what they're talking about is the situation where a government is unable to continue to finance itself. Right. In other words, it's not able to roll over its existing debt, nor is it able to obtain new financings. Now, what is generally not understood is that the process of reaching the bank point takes a very, very long time. Right. And in fact, there is very credible systematic evidence uh, in, in different econometric studies done by first-rate scholars that this process may take more than two decades. Right. And so as the debt levels go up, the economic performance gets worse. And what the studies show, not just one study or two studies, but, but four or five different studies, not just done in the United States, but done in Sweden and in Europe, what they show is that when government debt goes above 90% of GDP, bad things start to happen. Right. Moreover, when government debt goes above 100%, bad things start happening at a faster rate. Now, this creates a dilemma because conditions are bad. People are hurting. The government wants to respond. So the initial response is to think, well, we have to borrow more money and spend it. Right. It, it, it's a human reaction, it's a well-meaning reaction, but the net result is it makes the economy weaker. And the fact of the matter, the way it looks to, to uh, based upon these studies and other considerations, that we're at the point now where monetary and fiscal actions that result in higher debt levels are not only unproductive, but they are counterproductive. And, and so monetary and fiscal policy are basically out of the game. Now, the Fed wants to be relevant, but the fact of the matter is they are no longer relevant. Now, you mentioned some of these studies, Lacey. I wonder if you could talk about some of these studies that were done in Europe as well as uh, in the U.S. and you know, what they identify as some of these critical problems. Well, there are, there are three that I think that are particularly important. Um, the, the first 
was done by two outstanding Swedish economists, uh, Andreas Berg and Magnus Henriksson. Uh, they both were holders of the doctorate in economics. Both of them uh, had tours through Harvard to teach in, at Lund University in Sweden. Very serious econometricians. What they found as that as the proportion of the economy controlled by the, gov the central government goes up, uh, economic activity deteriorates, and there is a highly significant negative correlation. Um, another one of the studies, also European, uh, published in 2010, uh, the study was conducted at the European Central Bank and uh, was funded by the European Central Bank. Uh, the, two, the two authors are Christina Checherita and Philip Rother. Philip Rother is uh, head of the Fiscal Policy Division of the European Central Bank. And um, they, they reach a number of very important findings. Uh, first of all, they find that um, a study done by Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff in 2010 uh, is valid that when government debt rises above 90% of GDP, the growth rate starts falling by an average of about 1%. Uh, but they, they have some new findings that are quite significant. Uh, first of all, they find that as the debt level rises above this turning point zone, mm -hmm. which is somewhere between 90 and 100, once you get above that the, and the government debt levels rise, you get an accelerating deterioration. Right. Uh, they call it a nonlinear effect. Um, they also provide evidence that the <clears throat> negative consequences of high government debt start to be felt uh, as low as 70 to 80 percent of GDP. And their, their final very useful conclusion is that uh, they're able to identify the mechanism whereby the high government debt causes this debilitating effect. Right. Um, and the, the, the linkages are through uh, private saving, public investment, uh, factor productivity, and also the interest rates. Uh, in economics, one of the true conditions is that in physical investment, investment in plant equipment, the kind of investment that do generate an income stream, the, th the type of investment, not financial, that makes us better off, must equal saving. Right. In other words, someone has to push back and not consume all of their income. Well, as the government makes greater assurances, that begets the need to make further assurances. Right. And so one of the consequences is that as the government debt levels rise, private saving comes down. Private saving comes down in physical investment in cash generating activities also goes down. This undermines um, the growth and factor productivity. Now we've spent a lot of time talking about the United States. The United States unfortunately is not the only nation experiencing debt problems or the only economic zone. I wonder if you could talk about some of the other heavily indebted nations around the globe. You know, briefly, just sort of chart that landscape too. Well, the, as bad as the U.S. situation is, uh, the situation in Europe and uh, Japan and the U.K. and possibly even China is worse than it is here. 
let me just go over some of the numbers. Uh, our public and private debt is about 350% of GDP. Uh, in the 17 countries in the Euro currency zone, uh, it's 100 points higher, 450%. In the UK, it's 500%. In Japan, it's approaching 650%. Um, in addition, the European figures are, do not include some very explicit unfunded liabilities much more closer than Social Security and Medicare. The, the European Central Bank, uh, which does not follow the standard American accounting identities uh, requirements, has liabilities that exceed their assets mm -hmm. by a considerable sum, um, approximately four trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, if you were to uh, transfer those back to the to Germany and the other members of the Euro currency zone, then Europe is even more indebted. Now, if you look at China, and you we only have the government debt there; we don't have public and private. Right. It looks like their situation is okay, but um, the Chinese own 45% of the businesses. So the official government debt in China should be augmented by the debt that's hidden in the government. When we do that, we find that uh, central government debt in China is about 160% of GDP. Remember, bad things happen when it goes above 90. Right. And so, in the current situation, although we are very heavily indebted and we're moving toward higher debt, we, in a relative sense, are in better shape than some of our major trading partners. Right. Lacey, I wonder, if, for our final question, if you would talk about pathways uh, to resolving this or what you imagine unfolding going forward. Well, I, I think we have the technical knowledge of what needs to be done to uh, corral the problem. The, the issue is that the magnitude of the problem is so great and uh, the amount of shared sacrifice that would be required by so many that we can talk about the pathways and we should talk about them. But my own personal view is we're not going to be able to achieve them. Yeah. So we're going to continue to slide down toward the bank point. Um, it may take us another decade, two decades, I don't know, but I don't think the bank point is imminent, but I, I, I just, I, I don't see the country's capacity to act on the problem. Um, but having said that, it, it seems to me that there would have to be significant shared sacrifice, both by those who are receiving the benefits of government spending and those who are paying taxes. Uh, without shared sacrifice, and legitimate shared sacrifice. Uh, it wouldn't be possible to put together a package. Right. Everybody is going to have to have uh, skin in the game. Lacey, thank you very much for My being pleasure. with us today. And join us at www.cfainstitute.org for more of our Take 15 series of video interviews. Thank you for joining us.
Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.